Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, one and all. To another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. What's up, guys? How are you? Long time no see. Got a uh, message from our our buddy uh, Ross from from Scotland. He said, "Hey, man, you guys used to be used to churn out two episodes a week. Ever since I visited, you haven't you've put out one. What's going on? It's been a month. Been a month plus. Uh, well, fair enough, man." Uh, but you did inspire me to, to get on here and do this today. Um, I've been preparing this one for some time and, uh, I've had all kinds of unusual delays. So uh, a lot of things going on outside of the podcast for me and just haven't had the time to, to dedicate to it. So shame on me, but today we're going to do part two, um, much anticipated part two of CS Lewis in space. All right. So we did out of the silent planet, which was C.S. Lewis, a fictional space sci-fi story that C.S. Lewis brought to us. It turns out that's part of a, uh, a three-part series. So if you didn't listen to um, the first episode, C.S. Lewis in Space, go back and uh, listen to that one first. This one is going to pick up from where that book left off. And we're going to have a lot of the same um, kind of unusual things we had before. This is not a nonfiction uh, book like usually we're reading philosophy or Myths or something that we can talk about in a certain way, and this is a uh, this is a fictional story. So I have to tell you the story. Like I, I I don't exactly want to talk to you about the story, but I can't talk to you about the book without telling you the fucking story. So maybe this will be a long one. I kind of hope not, uh, but I'm gonna have to, uh, like I did in the first episode kind of take you along the the story. I'm going to summarize it as much as I can. So this is not intended to be, um, you know, a story story hour here. I'm not going to sit here and open up the book and show you all the wonderful pictures like we're like we're talking to a child, uh, reading a children's story to children. Uh, there aren't pictures, you guys. This is a big boy book. But, um, uh, but I have to. So really what I want to do... Oh, there it goes, dominoes. What I want to do is focus on some of the conversations that happen in the book, like I did the first time. Those conversations are um, a retelling. They're C.S. Lewis's way of retelling um, Christian ideas and myths. Um, and the retelling is important, and, I, and we'll talk about that in the conclusion a little bit, but the fact that this is a retelling of stories that we already know is important um, and compelling. 
um, because we do know these stories. This is basically the Garden of Eden story that we're going to talk about. It's a retelling. There's a twist on it. But it's a way of introducing ideas that we have brushed off, like important foundational ideas that we have, that have taken Western society and our culture to tremendous heights. And we're so familiar with them that we don't take them seriously anymore. You know, the story of the of Adam and Eve in the garden, how seriously do most people take that story? So the retelling, I think, is important. All right, so I'm going to pull this up here and let's get into it. This one's C.S. Lewis in Space Part 2. We're going to call this one Paralandra. Um, again, I, I really don't want to have to recap the first one, so if you haven't seen the first one, go, go listen to that one first. Um, but just to kind of tee it up, um, in the first book, uh, the main character, Ransom, he ends up uh, finding himself on a spaceship, and uh, this is before the, the, um, you know, the space, space age, uh, so this is this crazy sci-fi situation where he finds himself on another planet, turns out to be Mars, and on this other planet he finds all sorts of living beings and different uh, species of aliens, and many of them are intelligent. And it's kind of crazy, you know. You get to see, you get to experience um, through the eyes of uh, of the author uh, what this crazy Martian landscape would be like, what the uh, what the um, beings would be like, and um, and and then he weaves in kind of a, an alien understanding of things that are very familiar to us from our own religious beliefs: the idea of spirits and gods and angels and uh, you know all kinds of things like that. But he puts this twist on it. The way that an alien might try to describe the same kind of spiritual reality that we describe in our religious stories. That's what makes it so compelling. Um, he's going to do the same thing here with Paralandrum. So what I want to do, I want to read one line from the preface, because I think it's great. So before you even get into the book, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, All the human characters in this book are purely fictitious. And none of them is allegorical. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? None of the human characters in this book, excuse me, all of the, all of the human characters in this book are purely fictitious. So he, he, he specifies human characters. Like not all of the characters in the, in the story are going to be human. Many of them are spirits. And so he's telling you and he's not telling you. Like I'm going to tell you a fictional story. And all the human beings you see in it are fictional. And everything else that, I, that I'm telling you in this book is not. And he clarifies that by saying, none of them is allegorical. So I thought that was interesting. All right, so I'm just going to open up the story for you, how, how it begins. There's a, um, a new character that you don't know from the first book. And um, he is going to see... Ransom. So he's traveling to go visit Ransom. So uh, again, you, you, we, we know Ransom already. That's the main character of the first book. We don't know who this guy is. He's going to see Ransom. He seems to know all about Ransom and his trip to Mars or Malacandra. And he knows about the Eldil spirits and he's fascinated by all that. So this is somebody who, um, you know, seemingly knows all the stuff that, that went down. Maybe Ransom made it public. It's not really clear. Um, but he knows. And Ransom has asked him to come, and so he's, he's, he's going to see Ransom. 
Um, this guy is fascinated with the Eldelite, with the spirits, but he's also really deeply afraid of them. And when he gets to Ransom's cottage, uh, Ransom kind of drops a bomb on him. He's like, look, I called you here for a reason. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I'm going to Paralandra, the Oyarsa of Mars, this, the, the spirit of, of, of Mars, of Malacandra. Um, he's going to send me you know, by some sort of spiritual means, to Paralandra, which is Venus. It's this other planet, right? We don't we we know from the first book that all of the planets have these guardian spirits, these arch angels that oversee the planets, the Oyarsa. And uh, and there must be one of Venus, and there must be a reason why he's being sent to Venus, why the Great Spirit is sending him there. Um, and it's not clear what that is, but this this guy is absolutely blown away by it. He's like, well, what do you mean? You get to go to another planet, and there's this whole other adventure, and there's all this other shit going on over there that you get to see? And Ransom says to him, it will be warm. I'm to go naked. It's a weird thing to happen. He's like, he's like yeah, I'm, it's going to be warm on Venus, and I'm going to have to go naked. And you might wonder... Why? I mean, there's this whole there's this whole scene where it's like a it's like a casket made of ice that Ransom has to get into, and it's spiritually sort of taken uh, through space to to uh, to Venus, and um, Ransom is in some sort of suspended animation while this is happening. It's very strange the way that they they paint it up, but it's, it's interesting. Oh, why is why is he get naked before he gets into this coffin, this ice coffin? And I think the imagery there are important because. The whole story we're going to read is a retelling of the Garden of Eden story. And Adam and Eve, being the first created beings, are just like you and I when we're born on the day on the day of our birth, wearing the same birthday suit as it were, but naked. And so and so Ransom has to get naked so that when he arrives on this planet, he will be like a brand newborn baby or like a, a, a brand new created being like Adam and Eve, naked. So he undresses, he enters this strange ice casket thing um, and explains that the Oyars is going to transport him in it. He explains that when he returns, he's going to need to be cared for, which at last brings us to the reason that Ransom invited him in the first place. Ransom needs somebody trustworthy to wait for his return and take care of him when he arrives. So we don't know what kind of state he's going to be in, but we know he's going to have traveled through space, you know, a long, long way. Um, it takes up over a year for Ransom to show back up, and that's what happens. This guy waits patiently after a year or so. Um, he finds Ransom's casket, ice casket thing back in the garden where it left. And when Ransom wakes up, um, he seems like paradoxically younger and stronger than when he left, almost like he's become immortal or, or been rejuvenated in some, you know, magical sort of way. There's something about his uh, experience on Venus that, that did something to him. And it's all very mysterious. And uh, obviously this, this, this kid just wants to hear the story. He wants to know what the hell happened on Paralandra. And so Ransom gets into it. And the rest of this really is Ransom describing to him what happened and um, he describes Paralandra as a water world. I don't know if you saw that movie Waterworld with Kevin Costner. 
People hate that movie. I fucking love that movie. Uh, Waterworld. So something like that, right? There's no land. It's just a giant ocean kind of thing. And it's important because the way that they're describing the planet and the conditions on the planet um, corresponds to the beings that are created there. Like they're adapted to the planet. So it's important to understand the planet so you can understand the beings there. So it's an ocean of ever-changing dimensions and elevation, you know, huge waves, you know, that sort of thing. Everything's always in motion. Uh, and eventually, Ransom finds himself on a floating island of vegetation. This is the first, like, like land that he's able to find. Big floating uh, island of vegetation. And it's just moving to and fro with the, with the waves, constantly moving. He has trouble even walking on it. Um, he, in fact, Ransom describes trying uh, trying to walk on this floating um, floating island <clears throat> as trying to learn to walk on water, and I think that's really appropriate um, C.S. Lewis talk because he's always putting in those um, Christian allusions and analogies in uh, in his stories. Um, you know, the line the line the witch in the wardrobe is a good example of that. So Ransom's trying to learn to walk on water. It's like, yeah, he's, he's walking in the path of Jesus, something like that. And, and that's going to become important. All right, and I'll, I'll read kind of the first quote here. It goes like this. At Ransom's waking, something happened to him, which perhaps never happens to a man until he's out of his own world. He saw reality and thought it was a dream. He opened his eyes and saw a strange tree loaded with yellow fruits and silver leaves. Round the base of the indigo stem was coiled a small dragon covered with scales of red gold. He then realized that he was awake. He had a sensation not of following an adventure, but of enacting a myth. All right, so the first morning when Ransom wakes up on this floating island, he sees this dragon wrapped around this tree and the trees loaded with fruit yellow fruit silver leaves this is this is the image now for those of you who listened to our uh, Daniel Tord and, and my episode last on symbols you know this is going to kind of pop right out at you but clearly this serpent wrapped around the tree is an allusion to the garden of eden to the tree of knowledge and there's more reasons to believe that this is what you're supposed to the connection you're supposed to be making symbolically because of the fruit is gold. Okay, now there's a tr- another tree like the tree of life uh, from the book of Genesis that we see in other myths. In the Greek myths of the Garden of Hesperides, there's uh, a tree there, the tree of life that bears golden fruit. And the fruit is eaten by the gods and it's responsible for the gods' immortality. It is the fruit of immortality, and it's golden fruit. So you have all these sort of multiple levels of imagery showing you that they're in Eden. This is a this is a untainted um, new world. You have the you have the tree um, encircled by the by the serpent, just like you do in the Garden of Eden. And Ransom s- sees all of this, and he thinks to himself. I'm not having an adventure. I'm living out a myth. I'm enacting a myth. And that's some Jungian shit. I mean, yes, we're all living out a myth unconsciously, or many myths unconsciously. And that's the fact that myths exist at all, is to kind of give us insight into that. 
The stories we're living have been lived before many, many, many times. All right, so later he saw his dragon in flight moving towards a separate floating island. And he sees other creatures on the island. So up till now, (coughs) excuse me, I've been sick, you guys. Um, Up till now, he hasn't seen any creatures other than himself. He sees birds, he sees fish or something swimming swimming in formation. And, um, and I'll read you the quote here. He goes like this. He was astonished to see something apparently riding upon the lead fish. And upon reaching the shore, it's standing in human-like form and walking bipedally onto the island. He chased after the figure, allowing the waves to bring his island ever closer to its island. Until finally they came face to face. He had been prepared for wonders, but not prepared for a goddess, carved apparently out of green stone. And then it flashed across his mind that she had been strangely accompanied. She had stood up amidst a throng of beasts and birds as a tall sapling stands among bushes. Was this another myth coming out into the world of fact? All right, so... So he's obviously very thrilled to find um, that there are living beings here, but even more thrilled to see something that looks like a human being. It's weird. It's far off in the distance. It's hard to make out, but it's it's green. It's like a, like a green alien, right? We're on Venus, right? So we kind of expect uh, an alien, but this is a, a green alien in a beautiful form, a, a female form. And she's just surrounded by beasts, and you, and you can't help... But read this and see the picture of Eve in the garden, surrounded by animals. You know the animals aren't attacking her because this is before the fall of man. The animals are obeying her. She's, she she looks like this lone mother goddess, like a representative, as Eve very well may be, of this great primordial mother goddess figure from our ancient past, from our Neolithic religious traditions. The great goddess Gaia, the, the great mother, and that's who she is. That's who Eve is, right? Our great mother, the mother of humanity. All right, so when at last they meet, Ransom and this woman, he says to her, I am a stranger. I come in peace. And she replies, what is peace? Right, so this is important because what we're really going to focus on are the conversations that surround Ransom and this woman, and the third party who's yet to be, yet to show up, but will be showing up shortly. Um, all of the conversations with this green goddess woman—that's what we're going to focus on. And when he says to her, he doesn't know what to say to her, right? What would you say? But he says, "I'm a stranger. You don't know me, but I come in peace." She has no idea what peace even means, right? Because she's innocent. The world they're on is innocent. She doesn't know what peace means because she doesn't know what what conflict is, right? There are no others, so there is no conflict. So you see this image of innocence that she represents, the same image that Adam and Eve represented in the, the Garden of Eden before the fall. Innocent. Okay, now, when he gets to talking to her, um, she talks in a lot of ways, like some of the aliens did in Malacandra, and so some of it will be familiar to you. She, she talks about growing old, the same way they did in Malacandra. 
as if age relates only to self-transformation. Like when you have an experience or you learn something where you're not the same, it's, it's a significant change. You're not the same creature you were before you had that experience. You're transformed by it, right? This is what they mean by growing older, by becoming significantly different in your core, by becoming, by being born anew, being transformed and becoming something else. This is, this is the idea of growing old. It's like gaining knowledge. That's what they mean by growing old. It's not, it's not associated with time as such. And she is in awe of Ransom's conception of time, by the way. She has no idea. This linear idea of time makes no sense to her. Like, What, what does time mean if it's, not, if it's not associated with transformation? If nothing changes, what does it mean that time passes? Like, what is time then? doesn't mark any change, then it is nothing. And so this is this strange difference in, in uh, um, kind of way, ways of thinking between you know, the human and, and this green goddess woman. And she says this, she says, I have never done it before, stepping out of life into the alongside and looking at oneself living as if one were not alive. Do they all do that in your world? And this is interesting, because what she's talking about here is the first time ever in her life, in her experience, that she's seen somebody look at themselves as though they're a third party. Like, you might imagine um, hovering hovering above your own self and kind of watching you have a conversation with somebody or watching you do something uh, like a, like a, like a near-death experience, right? Where you're just floating above yourself, watching yourself. So we do this. This is a thing that we do all the time. It's such a part of ourselves. We don't really think about it much. It's being self-conscious. It's what we are to some degree, self-conscious beings. We look at ourselves as though we're a third person. We also look at ourselves as though we're the, we're, we're the, the first person. We, we imagine ourselves in our skulls, behind our eyes, looking out through them. But we also see ourselves as an object. Right? We're a subject, the thing in our body. But we're also an object, a body out there doing things with other objects. And she had never done that before. What does that mean? This innocent green goddess woman, this Eve character never saw herself as an object. She was only ever a subject. She was only ever that thing in her body, behind her eyes, looking out. And she's sort of blown away by that. You can even do that. That you can look at yourself that way. That you can be self-conscious. And there's something about that that, that is, is important because, it, because this idea of innocence and, and this idea of being, not yet being self-conscious are related. She has her innocence and lives in that innocence so long as she does not become self-conscious. She's unconscious. She's living among the beasts as one of them, in a sense. And I try to explain this many times before by talking about how animals don't really have... Um, they're slaves to their instincts. They don't really have a choice. Um, people might argue that we don't have a choice and there's no such thing as free will, but that's not what I mean. I mean that an animal, like a dog, um, sees food and, and instinctively eats it. It's like 
the, the experience of the food triggers the response. Cause and effect. Um, you know, another, another male dog comes in the picture and there's the, the instinct of aggression and they start fighting. It's like, you know, challenge, fight is cause and effect. And they roll through that experience without any control over it. The environment and the conditions control their behavior. And that's how unconscious beings are. Even if they're alive and a dog is alive, it's not conscious in the same way. It's a slave to its instincts. It's, it's nature alive responding to cause and effect. It's not like our experience where we can choose, where we can, you know, choose not to act, where we can steer our own boat. And she lives in this innocence where she doesn't yet steer her own boat. And she sees that as following the will of God, as if she has no other choice in the matter. All right, so Ransom asks her, you know, take me to your people. That's what he did in Malacandra, right? As soon as he met an alien, he's like, take me to your king. I want to, you know, talk, get this from the horse's mouth. Take me right to the source. Um, she, he says, take me to your people. And she's baffled. What do you mean? She admits there's only one other person, the king, but she doesn't know where he is. He's lost. She's never seen him. This whole planet has only the king and the queen, only the Adam and Eve. And she has no idea where he is. And she has no people. She has no idea what he means, take me to your people. Ransom says, look here, you must have had a mother. Is she alive? Where is she? And the goddess responds, what do you mean? I am the mother. There are no people. She is the mother. She's the mother to be. And she's baffled. And he explains to her that on earth men die they're not immortal as she seems to be. And there's lots of people. And she responds, You make me grow older more quickly than I can bear. See what I mean about her growing older? It's not about, it's about gaining knowledge. Growing older is about gaining knowledge. You make me grow older more quickly than I can bear. I have been so young till this moment that all my life now seems to have been a kind of sleep. I thought that I was carried in the will of him I love, but now I see that I walk with it. I thought that the good he sent me drew me into them as the waves lift islands, but now I see that it is I who plunge into them. It is a delight with terror in it. God damn, it's so good, man. It's a delight with terror in it. To have free will is a delight with terror in it. To be self-conscious is a delight with terror in it. Truer words have never been said. To be alive is a delight with terror in it. Is it not? So until she, until she was enlightened by Ransom and about these ideas... Um, that, there, that there's such a thing as other people and that there's a, such a thing as self-consciousness and you know, there's a, such a thing as death and that sort of thing. She, you know, she says, you make me older more quickly than I can bear. She said, up until that moment, she's, she feels like she's been in a kind of sleep. And it, what's, what's interesting to me about this is that this is how the depth psychologists like Carl Jung talk about the phenomenon of becoming self-conscious. Being unconscious is the original state of nature. 
That's what nature is. That's what God is. Um, attached to this conscious part that's, that's born from the unconscious. So you start off in an unconscious state. Imagine yourself as a as a blastula before you're even a fetus. You know, you're you're growing a patch of cells in your in your mother's womb, and you aren't a conscious being exactly. You're in a kind of sleep. You're in a kind of unconscious state uh, from which you will soon be born. You'll soon be hatched, right? And she says. I thought I was carried in the will of him I love. She means, I thought I was being moved along through the will of God. She says, but now I see that I walk with it. It's not that that I am floating helplessly on the current of God's will, and I don't have a choice in the matter. It's that I'm walking stride by stride with it. You see how you have this subtle change in perspective between her relationship with God. She thought she was floating along on the current of God's will and didn't have a choice in her experience in her life. And now she sees herself as walking on her own, arm in arm with that will. So you see how she's beginning to stand on her own. She's beginning to separate herself from the idea of God's will, beginning to form this idea of her own will. And this theme is going to run through the entire book, and it's terrific. It represents the idea of becoming self-conscious. And I love this. She said, I thought that the good he sent me drew me into them as the waves lift islands. This is all she knows. She lives on this water world of floating islands. And she she thinks that God sends her things in waves, just like, you know, her, her reality is, is a series of wave, one wave after the next, after the next. She says, but now I see that it is I who plunge into them. Fuck, man. Yes. She is an I. She has a will. And it's her choice to plunge into them. That's like the birth of the ego. It's the discovery of herself as an I. All right, so they drift at last to a solid land. This is not a floating island. This is a solid land. And they depart looking for this lost king. So this is what they're doing together now, looking for that king. He must have the answers. He's the king. Let's find him. And on this trip, Ransom learns that Maleldil, and this is the, the, the word they use for God, um, has bid the creatures of Venus never to sleep on the unmoving lands, on the fixed lands. So that, that's where they are. They're on this island looking for the king. But you now know they can't stay there. God has forbidden it. They're not allowed to sleep on the fixed lands. And it's presented as the one divine commandment, the one thing God asked for, which of course parallels the prohibition in in the Genesis story against eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Of course, these are tied together, right? Eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge immediately gives Adam and Eve self-consciousness. And that's, that's, that's the goal here. That's what we're aiming for. This is... This is the rule on Paralandra on Venus. Do not sleep on the fixed lands. Now, she doesn't know why it's forbidden, but she never even thought to question it. Of course, if God says don't do it, she's not going to do it. She doesn't have a will of her own, right? Up until just recently, she didn't even know she, was, she, she had a will of her own. She didn't know she was distinct from God. So her will is God's will. If God says no, God damn it, no. 
she was surprised to learn that this rule didn't hold on Ransom's world, that, that God's laws aren't universal. This, this was something she couldn't quite understand. And you might, you might ask yourself the same question. Does that make any sense? Ransom then asks her why he hasn't seen any Eldile on her planet. Like when he went to Mars, he was seeing spirits, encountering spirits all the time. But since he's been on Venus, nothing. And again, she has no idea what he's talking about. El Dile, she has no idea. And then Maleldil shows her what, what ransom means. So presumably she gets some kind of a vision. And she, and she tells him, oh, okay, I understand. And she says, that is the old order. There is nothing now between us and him. They have grown less and we have increased. They received us, us things from the low world who breed and breathe, and their glory was to cherish us and make us older till we were older than they, till they could fall at our feet. So there are no spirits here. There are no Eldile spirits on Venus. She says that was the old order. She said, now there's nothing between us and him. Nothing between the green goddess, the, the, the conscious creature, the living being, and God. There's no spirits in between. There's no need for that. And then she explains that the spirits, the Eldile, existed in order to, in order to prepare the living beings, uh, in this case herself, um, for their destiny. The spirits shrink and she, so that she's allowed to grow. Her spirit replaces the intermediary spirits, the Eldile. She's taken over for them. They have prepared the way and handed it over to her, whatever that means. And there's this idea of this sort of ever-shrinking boundary between God and creation, making man ever less body and ever more spirit bringing him ever closer to God, something like that. And there's no need here in this perfect innocence, you know, on Venus, no need for the intermediary spirits. And then when he says, uh, when she says, rather, that their glory was to cherish us and make us older till we were older than they, till they could fall at our feet. See, this is an interesting thing where Becoming older isn't about time, it's about, it's about knowledge and transformation. So the spirits give their knowledge and transform the, the, the woman, or her spirit, um, emptying themselves into her, something like that, until, until she's older than them, until her experience is more complete, more perfect, and you know, She's standing on the shoulders of giants, but those giants are the, are the angels, the spirits that came before her, something like that, until they could fall at her feet. And that, that is another mythological reference to the story of, I think this may be in the Quran and rather than the Bible, but this story of um, Adam and Eve being created and then God asking the angels to bow down and worship um, man, right? the pinnacle creation, man. And some of the angels refuse, right? They're, they're not going to bow to a creature made after them. 
They're not going to bow to a creature that God made from earth when they were made from fire. That's the Islamic story. So that's, that's Iblis, that's Satan, that's Lucifer, who refuses to bow down to man. But that's what, that's what happened here, right? The, the El Dile fell at the feet of the king and the queen, recognizing their superiority, the superiority of man over an angel. I want you to think about that because that is something interesting. It may be that human beings in this Judeo-Christian mythological context are greater than the angels. We're spiritually greater than the angels. Now we think about angels as being greater spirits than ours. They're immortal spirits. They're not mortal spirits. They're greater than us in that way. Maybe. They're closer to God. Maybe. They have powers we don't have. Maybe. Things like that. We don't think of ourselves as superior to angels. We think of angels as closer to God than us. But there's something not right about that, mythologically speaking. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, the last and final creation, the glory of God. The angels aren't. How can that be? That a man, a flesh and blood human being, is greater than an angel? I'm asking you that question. Think about that. All right. Ransom explains to the Green Lady about the Eldil and Oyarsa of Earth. You remember the Oyarsa of Earth is the devil, the angel, the archangel that, that rules over Earth. That is the fallen one. So he has to explain this to her. But she doesn't have any concept of evil, right? She has no way of understanding what he means. So he, he makes an analogy from her own experience, something he noticed when they first met. Right? It's like talking to a child in a way. Right, She's not yet made old enough. She's not like him. There's a lot of things she doesn't understand. There's all concepts that she doesn't understand. You know, So how does he explain to her that the Oyarsa of Earth is evil or what evil means? It's brilliant. This is what he does. He reminds her that when they first met, when she first saw him on that floating island, she was disappointed. And she had this look on her face like oh that's not who I thought you were right she was looking for the king she thought he was the king and he wasn't and so for a second she was disappointed right it's like God sent her something and rather than accepting it gratefully she for a second was disappointed ungrateful you know and she referred to that as clinging to the wrong good Meaning that she should have been grateful for whatever God granted her. Whatever wave came her way. Rather than secretly wanting it to be something else. right? Secretly wanting it to be something else is a recognition of her own will. right? God's will was to send her ransom. Her will was to have the fucking king. And instead she got ransom. See that? She was clinging to the wrong good. She should have just been happy with this new experience granted to her by fate, by God. She should accept the new good and not wish it to be the old or the wrong good. And then that's how Ransom explains it. He says that the Oyarsa of Earth has clung to the wrong good since before the cosmos was created. That's how he tells it to her. Isn't that amazing? Now then in the distance, 
they see like a shooting star crash into the ocean. And Ransom recognizes it's not a star. It's a spaceship. And even worse, it's a familiar spaceship. It's none other than Weston, right? his old enemy from Alicandra. Same spaceship he, he went to Mars in with, with Weston, the, the enemy, the villain. And Ransom and the Green Lady rush off to, assist, to meet Weston to see what this crash is. Ransom out of desire to protect the Green Lady from Weston, but the Green Lady out of the desire to greet this new arrival onto her planet. Weston greets Ransom as if he had expected to meet him there. Ransom confronts immediately with his bloodlust on Malacandra and his disregard for for all beings that weren't human. You know, Weston was killing you know, aliens on Mars left and right, didn't, get, didn't care, didn't give a shit. And Ransom never had an opportunity to rip it into him for it. And as soon as he sees him, he just rips into him. And he never expected that Weston would apologize, but he does. And this is an important bit of the conversation. This is really the first meat and potatoes part where Weston talks about his change of heart. And I want you guys to listen to this conversation because because I find myself agreeing with the villain on almost everything he says. I'm on Weston's side in this discussion. And there are subtle ways that I disagree with Weston. And I think they are very subtle. Um, And yet those subtleties make the difference between righteousness and evil. Those subtleties make the difference, make all the difference in the world. And it encapsulates the pushback that I get from Kyle when I talk about my own religious instincts, when I talk about the all being one and, and, being, and being the same thing as God, that, that the, the only identity that exists is God, if that makes any sense to you. If you listen to the podcast regularly, it probably makes some sense to you. And he pushes back on this idea of solipsism really the idea that if you say that you are god if you if you accept your identity as unified with this concept that we call god that you run the risk of megalomania you run the risk of all kinds of of error and he's not wrong he's totally right about that and his way of protecting himself from that is to is to refuse to erase that line between creation and creator I don't think that line exists. But he says, nope, there is a God. Let's make that line real dark and firm. On this side, you have, you have creation. On this side, you have creator. And I just want to draw a big circle around that whole image and say, one thing, sir. One thing. Okay, so let's get into it. Here's how Weston apologizes. I began to see that my own exclusive devotion to human utility was really based on an unconscious dualism. All my life I had been making a wholly unscientific dichotomy between man and nature, had conceived myself fighting for man against his non-human environment. As a physicist, I had been content to regard life as a subject outside of my scope. The conflicting views of those who drew a sharp line between the organic and the inorganic, and those who held that what we call life was inherent in matter from the very beginning, had not interested me. 
Now it did. I saw almost at once that I could admit no discontinuity in the unfolding of the cosmic process. I became a convinced believer in emergent evolution. All is one. The stuff of mind is present from the very beginning. All right, so there's more. I'm going to keep going, but you see what I mean. Weston says, I realized scientifically, you know, from my scientific perspective, I can't make a distinction between human life and alien life. When I kill those aliens thinking I was benefiting humanity, I, all I was doing was killing a different version of this thing we call life. I was making a mistake. There is no discontinuity in the unfolding of the cosmic process. Everything is this unfolding cosmic process. That's the thing that I call God, the unfolding cosmic process. And then he says, all is one. And I'm thinking, yes, Weston, I'm with you, bud. And then he says, the stuff of mind is present from the very beginning. It's like some panpsychism right there, baby. I love it. The stuff of mind, the noose, the divine mind. That's present in matter. That's present in nothingness. That, that's the immortal, eternal thing. And then he says, the majestic spectacle of this blind uh, purposiveness thrusting its way upwards in an endless unity of differentiated achievements towards an ever-increasing complexity, towards spontaneity and spirituality, swept away all my old conception of a duty to man as such. Man in himself is nothing. The forward movement of life, the growing spirituality is everything. I say to you, Ransom, that I should have been wrong in liquidating the Malachandrians. To spread spirituality, the Holy Spirit, not to spread the human race, is henceforth my mission. Okay. So he's like, look, I was defending man against nature, and I realized I should have been defending nature. I should have been defending life. Life in all of its forms, because life is spirit. And spirit is ultimately the thing that matters, the thing from which matter comes. The thing that God is made of, the thing that the Eldile and Oyarses are made of, the things that are greater than us, the things that we're a part of somehow, connected with them by our own spirits, through our own spirits. That's what spirit, it's about spirit. He even calls it the Holy Spirit. He's like, I shouldn't have killed the Martians. They're just as, just as holy a representation of life as we are. It's like, I'm, I'm going to dedicate my life from this point on to spreading spirituality, to increasing spirit, you know? It's not, it's not, about, it's not about making Mars and Venus places where human beings can live. It's just filling them with life to the extent possible. And Ransom says, I am a Christian. And what we mean by the Holy Ghost is not a blind purposiveness. And then Weston gets Ransom to admit that God is a spirit. And he says, the goal, Ransom, the goal, think of it, pure spirit the final vortex of self-thinking, self-organizing activity. And Ransom pushes back. He's like, is it in any sense personal? Is it alive? Yes, says Weston. Not a person, of course. Call it a force. A great inscrutable force pouring up into us from the dark bases of being. 
a force that can choose its instruments. All right, so thinking about God as a force, that's something that I have a hard time, I have a hard time uh, uh, not accepting. A force that pours up into us from the dark bases of being. I mean, that's a poetic way of putting it, but yep, I'm with you. I'm with you, Weston. The force of life is a spirit. It does, it does possess us and, and make matter an incarnation. I mean, that's what it is. And without the incarnating spirit, matter just turns back to dust. Ashes to ashes, baby. And Weston goes on, he says, Why did I do physics? Why did I discover the Weston rays? Why did I go to Malacandra? The force has pushed me on all the time. It is through me that spirit itself is at this moment pushing on to its goal. It's like the hair stands up on my arms. Yes. You are an instrument. We are an instrument. Matter is an instrument. To be filled with spirit and used to manifest the will of the spirit in the world. And so in a, in a, in a manner of speaking, the spirit is at this moment pushing Weston on to something. Right? Matter is something like a puppet filled with God so that God can use that matter to do what it will. And Ransom pushes back. He says, there are spirits and there are spirits, basically, is what he says. A thing might be a spirit and not good for you. And Weston replies, wait, didn't we agree that God is a spirit? Don't you worship him because he is pure spirit? And Ransom says, good heavens, no. There's nothing specially fine about simply being a spirit. The devil is a spirit. And Weston perks up right away. So now you're mentioning the devil is very interesting. This tendency to breed pairs of opposites. Heaven and hell. God and devil. I need hardly say that in my view, no real dualism in the universe is admissible. The cause of this universal religious tendency is to be sought much deeper. All right, so I want to say, when Ransom brings up the idea of the devil and Weston jumps on it right away, he's like, look, I, I see this all the time. People have this tendency of, of taking something that's one thing and breaking it up into pairs of opposites. Why do we do that? Why do we say heaven and hell? Why do we say God and devil? Those things really aren't two things. And he, and he says that plainly. There's no real dualism admissible in the universe. Everything unfolds in this cosmic process. So where is the other? Where is the otherness? It's all one. There is no. There are no opposites. There are no. You know. Um, there is no separation really. He says, the cause of this universal religious tendency to to split things into opposites is to be sought much deeper. The doublets are really portraits of spirit. Self-portraits, indeed, for it is the life force itself which has deposited them in our brains. So when we think of this dichotomy of good and evil, God and the devil, he says that is a self-portrait. That is the way we're to understand spirit. And how do we know that? Because that's how we understand spirit. We have this tendency of, of, of imagining a, a dichotomy, God and the devil. 
It's like, that's on purpose. That's how we need to understand the idea. But understand that that idea is a self-portrait. It is a, it is spirit expressing itself to us. It represents its own image. And that seems to be related to the image of God being, being divided into male and female, as we see in Genesis. He says, your devil and your God are both pictures of the same force. Again, something I agree with in a manner of speaking. He says, your heaven is a picture of the perfect spirituality ahead. Your hell, a picture of the urge which is driving us on to it from behind. The next stage of emergent evolution, beckoning us forward, is God. All right, let's pump the brakes there for a second. The next stage of evolution, beckoning us forward, is God. What does that mean? He's saying that our destiny is to become God. That evolution is leading us to that eventuality. He says, it is a question of making yourself the conductor of the live fiery central purpose becoming the very finger with which it reaches forward the thing we are reaching forward to is what you call God the reaching forward is what people like you always call the devil god damn that's good so he's saying our goal is to become God and he says that we can make ourselves the conductor of the central purpose I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but when he says to become the very finger with which it reaches forward, he's saying that you, individually, as a part of this unfolding cosmic process, can assume the cosmic process for yourself, right? You are the conscious thing emergent from that process that can harness that process by realizing that it is that process, like if you realized that you were God and that gave you the power of creation, then you can, then you can direct creation, you personally. And this is where we start to get on a, on a bumpy road. This is where we start to diverge, where Weston and I start to diverge. Some of this I agree with, some of this I don't. It's that megalomania that, 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 that he's dancing with right now that I, I steer away from. And Weston does not. Ransom then asks him if he would go against his own conscience. He says, would you print lies? Would you commit treason? Would you commit murder? If spirit told you to, you know? And Weston said, yes. Without a thought, yes. And Ransom said, God help you. And Weston says, can you understand nothing? There is no possible distinction between me and the universe. Yes, I agree with that. There is no possible distinction between any being and the whole of the universe. Then he gets back on that rocky terrain. He says, insofar as I am the conductor of the central forward pressure of the universe, I am it. Do you see? I am the universe. I, Weston, am your God and your devil. I call that force into me completely. And as soon as he said those words, it's like he's hit with a bolt of lightning. He calls the force, you know, into himself. 
and he just starts convulsing, falls to the ground, almost dead, basically dead, but he's unresponsive. And Weston leaves him behind. <laughs> Weston kind of leaves him behind. Um, at some point, though, he encounters Weston again, live and well, um, and he's speaking to the green lady. So imagine Weston's concern. Imagine his fear when he knows Weston is a villain, and he knows he just had this weird, at a bare minimum, this weird medical emergency, and now Weston is talking to the green lady, this woman that Ransom knows is utterly important and wants to protect, certainly wants to protect from Weston. And Weston is questioning her on God's prohibition against sleeping on those fixed lands. And he just he's just, you know, picking at her bit by bit by bit. And this is what he's going to do, you know, for the rest of the book, really. He emphasizes how strange it is that God would, would, wouldn't prevent her even from thinking about it. It's like, why would you, why would he say you can't sleep on the fixed lands, but then not prevent you from even thinking or pondering it? Like, you're still able to fantasize about doing it, but you can't actually do it. And then that weird that God would let you do that if you're not supposed to? It's like temptation is necessary for virtue, right? You have, you have to conquer yourself or it's not virtuous. You know, it's like if I don't have a choice to sleep on the fixed lands, am I doing anything good by not? No, I have to have the temptation or it's not a good for me to obey. And he frames the ability to think about what is forbidden as, as a great wisdom. And she asks him, how? What do you mean? And he says, because the world is made up not only of what is, but of what might be. Maleldil knows both and wants us to know both. Might not that be one of the reasons why you are forbidden to do it? So that you may have a might be to think about? We have put many things into your mind which Maleldil has not. Do you not see that he is letting go of your hand a little? He is making you older making you to learn things not straight from him, but by your own meetings with, with other people and your own questions and thoughts. He is making you a full woman, for up till now you were only half-made, like the beasts who do nothing of themselves. And the green lady listens for Maleldil's voice. like he wants, She wants to hear what God will say about what Weston has just told her. He's, she's listening for the voice of God to confirm or deny, to, to, to judge the words that, that she's just heard. And he doesn't. Like she, she doesn't hear the voice of God. And the question that comes to my mind is, is God leaving this up to her? Like Is this a, a moral battle, a decision that she has to make? Or is this increasing self-consciousness? making the voice of God quieter all the time? Like, is it possible that her becoming older, her becoming, you know, more and more self-conscious, is that making it impossible for her to hear God? Is it, making it, is it making it more difficult for her to follow his will because her own will is getting larger, right, and overshadowing the will of God? Now, again, Ransom stumbles upon Weston at some point speaking privately with her. And this just keeps happening over and over and over again. Weston tries to um, 
you know, put little plant little seeds of, of, of evil really into this into this woman. And um, and uh, Ransom keeps trying to counterattack, you know, um, giving her the other side of the argument, undermining, you know, Weston's arguments the best he can. But it's just like a battle of influence. Um, yeah, Weston and, Ran- and, and uh, Ransom both trying to uh, influence the lady. So the next time he stumbles upon Weston talking to her, he's trying to convince her that it's good that he should make her older. He promises to teach her about death, a gift that Ransom had refused her. So now he's trying to put a wedge, you know, in between her and Ransom. And of course, Ransom interrupts. You know, he, he's afraid that Weston's contaminating influence is working and suggests, wouldn't it be better if... Um, Maleldil makes her older on his own, you know, in his own time. And Weston replies, brilliantly, Maleldil is beginning to teach you to walk by yourself. When you came to know that, you were becoming really old. And since then, Maleldil has let you learn much, not from his own voice, but from mine. You are becoming your own. That is what Maleldil wants you to do. That is why he has let you be separated from the king and even from himself. His way of making you older is to make you make yourself older. You have understood that to wait for Maleldil's voice when Maleldil wishes you to walk on your own is a kind of disobedience. So that last bit is brilliant. You can see the brilliance in the argument. It's like a, it's like a, a, a lawyer that's just a... Just a excellent, you know, um, uh, debater. He says, have you understood that to wait for Maleldil's voice when Maleldil wishes you to walk on your own, that is a disobedience. You see how he's twisting things. And what I want you to pick up on here is that it's always half true, the stuff that Weston is saying. And it's always very carefully said. And, and the reason I bring this up is because reason you know, what allows Weston to craft these arguments, what allows him to manipulate her sensibilities and her emotions and her, and her you know, thoughts. Um, it, it's, it's reason, it's human reason, it's this capability that we value so much as human beings. It's something that we're proud of. And pride and arrogance are, are associated with it. You know, it's like the Tower of Babel. What can man do? Man can do great things. We know that. And so reason and, and rationality are tools of the devil as well, you know. Uh, Lucifer is, is depicted in, mythologically as seeing himself as worthy or greater than God. Right? As, as trying to remember this phrase that, that Jordan Peterson used once upon a time. He said he was trying to describe Luciferian arrogance, and he said it's something like saying or believing, all that I know is all that is necessary to know, something like that. And that's the trap that human beings fall into, that our reason and that our knowledge has gotten us so far that we can rely on it exclusively. And reason, rationality, cannot be relied on exclusively. If you do, it's like it will lead you into 
error. It's like the golden mean. You have to remember to have balance. Too much, too much intelligence and not enough intuition is a problem. Too much intuition and not enough intelligence is a problem. You need a balance. You need to feel and think. You can't just think your way out of things. You can't. You have to feel and think. If you don't do both, you, there's a problem. And so the devil, the spirit of the devil, represents the thing that thinks only and doesn't feel. All right, so next, Weston suggests that Maleldil might forbid something arbitra arbitrary, like not to sleep on the fixed lands. Not just because but because it sets up a challenge for her to rise to. He brings up the prohibition not to sleep on the fixed lands and how it's not obvious why it's bad and also why it's not, why that rule doesn't apply on other planets. Why just here? Like, you know, she, he, so he's undercutting, um, you know, the uh, obeying, why she should be, why should she obey? And she thinks about it. And she asks why God would forbid something just for the sake of forbidding it. And of course, Weston has a ready answer. He says, In order that you may break it, what other reason can there be? It stands between you and all settled life, all command of your own days. Is not Maleldil showing you as plainly as he can that it was set up as a test? that you may become really old, really separate from him. And she answers, But if this concerns me so deeply, why does he put none of this into my mind? There is no whisper even of the voice saying yes to your words. So she's listening again for the voice of God, for something to resonate with her, to show her that this is true, and she is getting nothing. And he says, but do you not see that there cannot be? He longs to see his creatures become fully itself, to stand up in its own reason and its own courage, even against him. But how can he tell it to do this? That would spoil it all. Whatever it did after that would only be one more step taken with him. Do you think he is not weary of seeing nothing but himself and all that he has made? If that contented him, why should he create at all? To find the other, the thing whose will is no longer his, that is Meleldil's desire. The nearest he can come to telling you is to let some other creature tell it for him, and behold, he has done so. So what I want you to pick up on here is not only are you getting compelling, rational arguments here, and there's some truth in it, which just makes it compelling, you also see some telltale signs of, of you know, bullshittery. I don't know what word to use. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it bullshittery. So Weston is, is doing something here different from what he started doing in the beginning. He's starting to suppose and plant this idea in, in the lady's head what God's will is. This is a mistake. He's, he's claiming to know God's will. Right? He says, that is Meleldil's desire, right? To find the other, the thing whose will is no longer his, that is Meleldil's desire. So now he's trying to convince her of what God wants, even though God is silent about it. 
And that should be a red flag. And I think it should be a red flag for all of us. If we think we know what God's will is, think again. And of course, Ransom wants to step in here. He says, all this that we are now talking has been talked before. The thing he wants you to try has been tried before. Long ago, when our world began, there was only one man and one woman in it, as you are and the king are in this. And there once before he and, and there once before he stood as he stands now, talking to the woman. He had found her alone as he has found you alone, and she listened, and did the thing Maleldil had forbidden her to do. But no joy and splendor came of it. And Weston interrupts, He has not told you that it was the breaking of the commandment which brought Maleldil to our world, and because of which he was made man. Right, so this is the great, the great cosmic event that God became man on on Earth, that, that Jesus was incarnated, and he and basically he's using this as a defense. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told the I told Eve to break the rule that God set up for, her. and yeah, uh, the consequence of that was the greatest thing that ever happened. God became man. Isn't that so? Is that so bad? And Ransom says, of course, good came of it. Whatever you do, he will make good of it but not the good he had prepared for you. So not the good he had prepared, not not the good he had intended. That is lost forever. He says, the first king and the first mother of our world did the forbidden thing, and he brought good of it in the end. But what they did was not good, and what they lost we have not seen. He turned to Weston, you, tell her all. What good came to you? Do you rejoice that Maleldil became man? Tell her of your joys when you made Maleldil and death acquainted. But before he was made to answer, the green lady becomes overwhelmed and she falls asleep. So he, he, Ransom's trying to put Weston on the spot, kind of loses his opportunity. Um... I, and this is the bit that I want you to focus on here. When he says, but what they did was not good, and what they lost we have not seen. This is, this is really the crux of the, of the novel. What might have been if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen? If God's plan was able to play out as he intended, without the interference of, of, of the devil, without evil. If Adam and Eve had remained perfect in paradise, what future might we be in now? How different might the world be? How different might humanity be? And this is what we're supposed to be asking ourselves. What might have been? All right, so Weston continued to press on the Green Lady's doubts. Every chance he, she, he gets, he, he, he finds her alone and, and tries to persuade her of this, that, and the other. He's basically trying to get her um, ego to form. And, and, and trying to get her to put more emphasis on her own ego bit by bit. And Ransom is enraged by how, how well it's working, you know? And at this point, we don't really call him Weston anymore because it's clear that when Weston had that seizure, he's never been quite the same. And the things he says are, are beyond Weston's capabilities. It's clear that he's possessed by the devil. And so the story at this point calls Weston the unman. So I tell you that because 
we're going to see that phrase here. He says, what the unmanned said was always very nearly true. Certainly it must be part of the divine plan that she should mature, should become more and more a creature of free choice, should become, in a sense, more distinct from God, in order thereby to be one with him in a richer fashion. In fact, he had seen this very process going on from the moment at which he met her and had unconsciously assisted it. So, basically, Ransom knows that he's been sort of contributing to making the lady grow older. And that's exactly what the unman is doing. So he's, he sees himself as kind of complicit in the steps that are, that are tearing apart this innocence that he wants to preserve, you know? And Ransom came upon Weston, who had offered the green lady a mirror to see herself for the first time. So you see that ego again. He wanted her to think only of herself as an independent self, to be able to see herself more and more distinct from God or from, you know, the whole of nature, more in her own will and own consciousness and less and less unconscious. Weston tells her how to use the mirror. And here's the quote. Hold it further away and you will see the whole of the alongside woman, the other who is yourself. The image of her beautiful body had been offered to her only as a means to awake the far more perilous image of her great soul. The external conception of the self was the enemy's true aim. So he wants her to see herself for the first time. So he sees herself as separate from everything else, as her own thing. wants her to see the whole of the alongside woman, the other who is yourself. All right, Ransom could not understand why Malaldil should remain absent when the enemy was there in person. He had become aware in some indefinable fashion that it had never been absent. It was blasphemous. He tried to persuade himself that he, Ransom, could not possibly be Malaldil's representative as the unman was the representative of hell. The suggestion was itself diabolical, a temptation to fatuous pride, to megalomania. He was horrified when the darkness simply flung back this argument in his face, almost impatiently. If the issue lay in Meleldil's hands, Ransom and the lady were those hands. They could, if they chose, decline to save the innocence of this new race. And if they declined its innocence would not be saved. So this is really interesting to me. This, this part is Ransom. He's obviously, like, sore that he has to deal with this, you know, diabolical creature, this, this ancient, you know, um, unimaginably ancient spirit living in Weston's body who knows things he doesn't, he can never know. He, he doesn't think there's, this is a fair fight, really. And he asks himself, why does God not send his own representative when I'm sitting here staring the devil in the face. And then it dawns on him that he's that representative. He's God's representative, you know? And he's like, shit. Um, but he, but he's afraid of that idea. He says the suggestion itself is diabolical, a temptation to pride and megalomania. And then it says he was horrified when the darkness flung that argument back in his face. So he's afraid 
to consider himself God's representative on earth. You know, the, that which is possessed by God, the way the unman is possessed by the devil. He can't see himself that way. He, he doesn't want to. He doesn't feel worthy of it. And he says, God, this, this silent voice within him, throws that argument right in his face impatiently. It's like, what you, what you're, what you think is, is beyond you, what, you, what you're calling megalomania, is the truth. You are the incarnation of God. You are the hand of God. He and the goddess are the hand of God there, then and there, right? And if they chose, they could save the innocence of this new race. And if they decline, its innocence will not be saved. Ransom and the lady were the hands of God in this situation. And this is a way of understanding my own perspective when I say I am God, all is God. It's something like this, like what's being described here. And even the great traditional Christian C.S. Lewis is, is allowing not only Ransom to be that incarnation of God in the story, but is suggesting that, that God is impatient with him not coming to realize it sooner. I think that's interesting. All right, it says, The voice out of the night spoke it to him in such unanswerable fashion that though there was no noise, he almost felt... It must wake the woman who slept close by. He was faced with the impossible. And what is that? What, what is the impossible that he's facing? He needs to defeat the evil, the devil, and end the temptations of this lady. He knows he has to. He's losing. He sees he's losing. The devil keeps making progress with these conversations, undermining him all the time. He sees the, the slippery slope that, that's being prepared for her to fall in, you know? The war of influence upon the lady with Weston, it just couldn't be allowed to continue. She was becoming beaten down bit by bit, and by his twists of mind and manipulation of half-truths, Ransom thought if he was going to be God's representative on Perlandra, it wouldn't be enough to limit the battle to wits. He must physically battle the evil one. He must end it once and for all if there's any hope of saving the lady. The next morning, he awoke with a sense of urgency. He walks towards where the lady and Weston were, and he notices, strangely, everything is sleeping. Everything is quiet. No, no birds chirping, no footfalls, no voices. The lady slept, the animal slept, it was as if Maleldil was giving him an opportunity to have this physical battle without the influence or witness of anyone. God has put the world to sleep. And this brings me to the quote. He feared that he could not win against the devil himself, but he was determined to try for the lady's sake. He had been astonished to find Weston no stronger. He had all along, despite what reason told him, expected that the strength of his body would be superhuman, diabolical. But now he knew by actual experience that his bodily strength was merely that of Weston. And I, I wanted to focus on that because, because people think to, to fight evil in this abstract way is like fighting a giant. It's like fighting an unwinnable battle. It's like trying to go up against the spirit of evil itself. You know, what is one man going to do against the devil? That's the idea. 
And what, what Ransom finds when he actually engages with him, when Weston and Ransom are actually physically fighting, he's just a man. He's no stronger than me. He's just a man. And this speaks to the reality that evil is incarnate. It is a human spirit, and so can be conquered by a human spirit. The battle between good and evil is a mortal one between mortals. It is not, as we might feel, a spiritual battle against a superior power. I wonder, though, about the necessity of physical combat and death as an end to evil. It doesn't seem to conquer evil permanently. And in fact, it may be evil itself, like to kill something, you know? Contributing to the very thing your actions seek to end. And their battle just goes on and on and on. It's like terrible. If you read it, it's like terrible. Just dra- it's dragged out. It's it's violent. It's it's uh, you know it's something to read. And it goes on and on. And it reminds me of the story in Genesis where, where Jacob wrestles with God, and they have this long, drawn out match and Jacob won't give up. It just goes on and on and on, but he refuses to give up, even though he's fighting with God. He doesn't know it, but he's fighting with God. He's got no hope of winning. And God eventually dislocates his leg and, and reveals himself, and that's how that's how Jacob becomes Israel. And this fight with Ransom and Weston is like a parody of that. <clears throat> like the Black Mass is a parody of the Catholic Mass. It's something like that. As the battle went on, Ransom began to falter. He began to doubt if he could prevail after all. That brings me to this quote here. The energy of hating, never before felt without some guilt, without some dim knowledge that he was failing fully to distinguish the sinner from the sin, rose into his arms and legs till he felt they were pillars of burning blood. What was before him appeared no longer a creature of corrupted will. It was corruption itself. It is perhaps difficult to understand why this filled Ransom, not with horror, but with a kind of joy. The joy came from finding at last what hatred was made for. All right, let, me, let me stop right there, even though I want to keep reading. So he says this thing about confusing the sin, the sinner with the sin, which is something, I don't know, my mother told me many times, my grandmother, maybe you've heard that before, don't confuse the sinner for the sin, love the sinner, hate the sin, that kind of thing, there's a distinction. It's like people are not all evil. They're, not, they're always not all evil. So you don't want to hate the person, you want to hate the sin, right? Something like that. But then he says, while he's fighting with them, he says he realizes he's not a creature of corrupted will, but corruption itself. So Weston becomes the sin, corruption itself. Now, I mean, is he really? Like in this story, he's supposed to be a dead human body possessed by the spirit of evil. So he's not at all good. He's not redeemable. Um, he is sin itself incarnate. But that's not real. That's not, that's not real. It doesn't happen in the real world. Does it? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem that way. And so there seems like a bit of a paradox, a bit of a contradiction here that I'm struggling with, and I'll get to I'll focus on this at the end. He says this feeling where he was he felt like he was doing battle with corruption itself filled him with joy. The joy 
came from finding at last what hatred was made for. Bleeding and trembling with weariness as he was, he felt that nothing was beyond his power. And when he flung himself upon the living death, he was astonished at his own strength. So what is hatred for? It's for this reservoir of strength you didn't know you had. It's, the, it's, it's like this final tool in your tool belt that you can pull out, you know, and when all else is lost, hatred. It seems kind of strange to me as well. I mean, I kind of understand it, and I kind of fall back from that idea. When I read this, I can't help but think, I can't help but hear Darth Vader's voice say, the dark side is strong with you, you know? That's what it sounds like to me. And as the tide of the battle begins to finally turn in favor of Ransom, Weston disengages and he tries to run away. And I think this is important too. It's like the devil should be afraid of you, of what, of what you're capable of. After a long chase, Weston begins to speak in his old mortal voice, as if his human soul again assumed mastery over his body. He immediately tried um, to get Ransom's sympathies, really, and this worked just long enough for him to try to get his final attack in. You know, he's just trying to trick him here, as the devil, as the devil will do. And Weston tries to drag him below the waves. He tries to drown him. And they just keep struggling. They have this epic struggle. They both nearly die. Um, and at, at the last moment, they find themselves um, sunk down into the ocean, um, washed into this underground cave system. And when they get into that cave system, um, Ransom has this opportunity to finally deal the death blow. And he strikes him with a stone, and he kills him. Weston is dead. The incarnate devil is dead. Evil has been conquered. But it was conquered by murder. And I, this, is, this is the thing I struggle with most. But I'm going to put a pin in that for now. And Ransom, he ends up crawling for days up, up, and out of this cave. He doesn't know if he can even get out. And he's sort of, you know, you get this image of him striving towards the light, striving in the darkness towards the light, nearly dying. And he recovers slowly. Uh, eventually, he ends up exiting the cave, and he follows his instincts up and up and out. And then he up this mountain until he comes across this great valley, and he finds himself in the presence of these two spirits, these two Eldile. El and I want you to see that the image is of him crawling out of the cave, crawling out of the darkness towards the light. I get this image of Plato's cave analogy. You get up to the light, but it's not done. You're not done yet. Once he gets out into the light, then he crawls up the mountain. He goes up even higher heights. He goes up the holy mountain towards the sun, the source of light and consciousness and, and you know, God. And he finds the, the mountain opens up into this valley, and there are the spirits. The Oyarsa of Mars and of Paralandra, the two great spirits of the two of the two planets. And the Oyarsa speaks. Today is the morning day. The world is born today. And Ransom says, Has the queen found the king? And the Oyarsa says, Today, for the first time, two images of Maleldil that breathe and breed like the beasts step up that step at which your parents fell and sit in the throne of what they were meant to be. It was never seen before. All right, so this is that idea. What would have happened? 
what might happen if if humanity, if, if innocent, perfect humanity as God made it, is allowed to develop on its own without the interference of the devil, without the fall, what might be. And this is like a second opportunity for that. And the Ilyarsa decides to honor Ransom and the king and the queen who are coming by making themselves visible. And there's this awesome scene, and I'll just read it to you. It goes like this. A tornado of sheer monstrosity seemed to be pouring over Ransom. Darting pillars filled with eyes, lightning pulsations of flame, talons and beaks and billowy masses of what suggested snow volleyed through the cubes and heptagons into an infinite black void. There was nothing but that. Concentric wheels moving with a rather sickening slowness, one inside the other. Then at last they settled on a familiar form of man, but large and luminous and abstract. And so you have this kind of scene where the, the spirits are trying to take some form that the humans can understand. And, until, and before they turn into these sort of humanoid-looking creatures, all this crazy psychedelic imagery, you know, from uh, things that would be familiar to you from the, um, uh, the vision of Ezekiel and, and uh, you know, um, psychedelic experience. Colors and flames and, and eyes and pulsating, transforming, you know, all that stuff that, that, that uh, you know, mystics talk about and then boom they become these sort of man man like creatures that can be um, that can be seen and Ransom says but do I see as do I see you as you really are and they say only Maleldil sees any creature as it really is am I then seeing only an appearance is it not real at all you know Yarsa says you have never seen more than an appearance of anything I left that in because this is such a fundamental philosophical question. The difference between appearance and reality. Is there a difference between appearance and reality? And what is appearance? Some kind of an illusion. And this is what you see here. It's, it's, it's not exactly an Eastern idea. I mean, it is something you see in Hinduism, but you do see it in the ancient Greek philosophers as well. Um, but that's why I left it in. I thought that was really interesting. Okay, then their discourse was interrupted by the sound of footsteps. Lots and lots of footsteps. Uh, and behold, the animals of Paralandra came pouring into that sacred valley where Ransom stood with the, with the angels. They gathered in the valley like, like, like Noah's Ark. And finally, the king and the queen arrive. And you have this kind of scene that reminds me of the beginning of, uh, of the Lion King, or, or maybe it's the end of, yeah, the beginning of the Lion King. And all the animals are there uh, to, to worship the king, and that's what's happened here with, with this new Adam and Eve. And, and, it, and I'll just read the quote here. Ransom also had fallen down before the human pair. I have never before seen a man or a woman. I have lived all my life among shadows and broken images. And he describes the king. He tries to describe this, the king's face. He says, you might ask how it is possible to look upon it and not to commit idolatry, not to mistake it for that which it was the likeness, his live image, like him within and without, his masterpiece of self-portraiture. Yeah, self the very beauty of it lay in the certainty that it was a copy, like and not the same, an echo 
a rhyme, an exquisite reverberation of the uncreated music in a created medium. I love it, man. I love it. It's like that fractal image of as above, so below, like the Hermetics told us, what God is like. That is what we are like. We are made in his image. We are a self-portrait of God. All of creation is a self-portrait of God. It is, it is an experience of self-consciousness. Love it. All right, now the spirits are going to speak, and this is going to bring us to the end here. It's interesting. The Oyarsa says to the, to the crowd assembled, The floating lands and the firm lands, the seas and the holy mountains, the rivers, the fire, the fish, the birds, the beasts, and the others of the waves whom yet you know not, all these Maleldil puts in your hand. My word henceforth is nothing. Your word is law unchangeable. Give names to all creatures. Guide all natures to perfection. Strengthen the feebler. Lighten the darker. Love all. Make the nobler of the beasts so wise that they will become chanao and speak. When the time is ripe, we shall be all the Eldile. About that time, we shall not be far from the beginning of all things. Boy. When the time is ripe, we shall be as the Eldile. About that time, we shall not be far from the beginning of all things. And there's this idea of something cyclical here, right? We're going to progress to a point where we become like the spirits. And when we get to that point, we're going to be close to the beginning, right? Not close to the end, close to the beginning. And you've got this alpha and omega. You've got this ouroboric sort of image. It's just so beautiful. And Ransom's pondering the majesty of man in this perfect state, you know, represented by the king and the queen. He, He says, before, he says he's never seen a man and woman. What does he mean by that? Of course he's seen men and women. He's never seen a man and a woman as they should be, as they could have been, perfect, you know? But now he does. He sees the Adam and the Eve who have conquered evil, who didn't make that mistake, who are as they should be. And he says that he's seen them now for the first time. And as he's looking at them, contemplating what that means, he says, an animal, yet also a reasonable soul. Such was the old definition of man. But he had, he had never until now seen the reality. For now he saw this living paradise, the Lord and Lady, as the resolution of discords, the bridge that spans what would be a chasm in creation. What does he mean by that? He's looking at the king and the queen. He calls them living paradise. And he sees them as the resolution of discord. Right? The, uh, the, the resolution of conflict. Right? The, the, those are the opposing forces we talked about in, in Western speech in the beginning. We resolve the discord. We resolve the conflict. And it is, it is a union of matter and spirit of body and eldila, right? It's, it's a union of the transcendent and the eminent. And that, that's, that's that image of the Ouroboros, that ancient image of God, the union of opposites, the harmony of opposites. And what the king and the queen are is incarnated, a spirit incarnated into matter. 
So we're unifying spirit and matter, mind and matter. We're bringing them together in one thing. We're resolving that, that conflict. Two opposite things, spirit and matter. Couldn't be any more different. And we're bringing them together in a created being, in an incarnation. And one of the things I asked you to think about earlier is how it can be that a human being is greater than the angels. And this, I think, is what I want to point to. Human beings as the resolution of discords, as the union of, of creation and creator, as a union of the transcendent and the eminent. That is something that the angels are not. If they're pure spirit, they're not unifying the eminent. They're only spirit. We are both might that be how we are greater than they? Might that be why we are the pinnacle of creation? And then Ransom asks about the ultimate fate of the cosmos. And the spirits answer him. They say, He dwells, talking about God here, He dwells, all of Him, within the seed of the smallest flower and is not cramped. Deep heaven is inside him who is inside the seed and does not distend him. Of many points, one line. Of many lines, one shape. Of many shapes, one body. Of many senses and thoughts, one person. Of three persons, himself. The great dance was made in order that he might come down into it. As sparks fly out of the fire, he utters in each grain of it the unmixed image of his energy. Each grain, if it spoke, would say, I am the center. For me, all things were made. Each grain is at the center. Where Maleldil is, there is the center. He is in every place. Not some of him in one place and some of him in another, but in each place the whole Maleldil, even in the smallest beyond thought. He is the center. Because we are with him, each of us is at the center. Each thing, from the single grain of dust to the strongest Eldil, is the end and the final cause of all creation. And the mirror in which the beam of his brightness comes to rest and so returns to him. He utters himself and sees that he is good. He is his own begotten. And what proceeds from him is himself. Blessed be he. Motherfucker. So good. So good. Something very Alan Wattsian about it. I love it. Every being, the smallest to the greatest, is the fullness of God simultaneously. Everything is the end and final cause. Every individual thing, even by itself, is the end and final cause of all creation and the mirror by which God comes to know itself. Then he says something tremendous. He utters himself and sees that he is good. What does that mean? Just like God spoke creation into being in Genesis, that's what he does. God speaks himself into being. And what does he say? That it is good 
Isn't that what God said in Genesis? On the first day, he created the heavens and the earth and said that it is good, right? Every single time he creates, he says that. This is what C.S. Lewis wants us to know. God uttered himself into being and said that that was good. He is his own begotten, and what proceeds from him is himself. All is God. All is God, baby. And the book ends there. The spirits let Ransom back into his coffin, send him back off to earth. The book ends before you find out, you know, that he gets, you know, that he gets back safely. Kind of circle back to the beginning of the book to understand that happens. That's it. That's where we end. That brings me to my conclusion. It's difficult to grasp the significance of religious myths. It's made more difficult when those myths are too familiar to us. When we've heard them a million times. When we see them as children's stories for the unenlightened. But when those myths are represented, their power comes rushing back in astonishing fashion. It doesn't even take much. It is as though we need only look with new eyes to recover what has fallen into unconsciousness. What has been disregarded is already well understood. Paralandra is a perfect case in point. The story is nothing but a retelling of the Eden myth. It is a confrontation of the reality of evil and of human potential, and of the role we play in creating our reality and what reality may yet come. Seeing our lives as personal myths and ourselves as their heroes and heroines pushes back the self-deprecating and nihilistic instincts that haunt the human condition and allow us a glimpse of the cosmic significance of our lives and perhaps of life itself. I could select any number of things to elaborate on here. The unexpectedly pantheistic picture of God that the good Christian C.S. Lewis paints for us. The notion of incarnation and how it's explicitly seen in Ransom as the instrument of God, Weston as the instrument of the devil, or even the material cosmos itself, which are filled with the Oyarsa spirits, etc. How about the paradox between Weston's anti-material Gnosticism, his desire to become God by becoming pure spirit, and the Oyarsa's promise that in the end we will be as Eldile? This little book is stuffed to the brim with philosophical and religious ideas worth long consideration. But there is one that calls to me more than the rest. This is the decision of Ransom to kill Weston. Why this one sticks in my crawl has much to do with the news of the day. We are witnessing yet another Israeli-Arab war with death, tragedy, and religious motivation all around it. The news is full of images of the most vile sort. Dead children, crying mothers, desperate pleas, devastation. It's difficult not to see it as a battle between good and evil. I do not say that one side represents good and the other evil, but that this battle is being waged in the hearts of men on both sides. I ask myself, is it good that this war should end? course. Could the war be ended by the destruction of one side? 
Perhaps so, at least for a time. But does that mean it should be done? No. It cannot be good to crush the evil in some by removing them from existence. We need only recall the plight of Cain or the Hatfields and McCoys to understand that vengeance is a cancer. I'm reminded of Jesus' words, Turn the other cheek. Love thy enemy. So why should Ransom have killed Weston to bring an end to evil? Is murder not a sin regardless of its consequences? At the same time, I cannot help but see a cancer and wish for its destruction. I imagine acts of evil, rape, robbery, violence, and I feel compelled to intervene. I want someone to intervene. I think it's good that righteousness finds form in a strong, disciplined figure who looms large against evil and does not back down. I want the shepherd to chase away the wolves. I guess what I'm saying is, I wanted Weston ended. The question is, how do we destroy evil? How do we chase it away? When evil possesses the minds and wills of our own divine being... What are we to do? How do we crush evil? Within. Without destroying the good. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.